Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Making Good, a podcast about the people, products, ideas and initiatives doing the work the world needs now. My name is Lee Evans. This week I was joined by Nadina Gal and Sophie Nitoslavsky, who joined me to discuss their tech startup, The Internet of Nature. Their work is inspired by research into the wood wide web, the complex fungal networks which allow trees and plants to share nutrients, minerals and warn of threats. Research which has revolutionised our understanding of what trees are and the communities they form. These networks are highly fragmented in urban areas, which also confront young trees with the widest range of threats, causing significantly higher mortality rates than in non-urban areas. The Internet of Nature involves pioneering the deployment of remote monitoring technology, which will enable the expertise of arborists and green infrastructure professionals, and also potentially community stakeholders, to be much more effectively and efficiently mobilised. They're already working with over 30 city authorities around the world and have a breadth of experience and perspective which is as wide as their new venture is exciting. Nadina and Sophie are also remarkable articulators of their vision, which has the capacity to revolutionise the way we think about ensuring the highest possible quality of urban forestry at a time when the world needs this more than ever. I'm sure you're going to take a lot from this episode and I'd really encourage you to share widely on your network so as many people as possible get to hear Sophie and Nadina's pioneering work. They'll be giving a keynote presentation at the 4th Trees, People and the Built Environment Research Conference in Birmingham in April. A link to ticket info is available in the show notes, as well as Nadina's TED Talk. As always, please consider rating and reviewing. It helps the series reach a larger audience. And you can also follow us on Twitter. The handle is at MakingGoodPod. Hope you enjoy the show. Nadina and Sophie, thanks ever so much for joining me this week on the, um, on the Making Good podcast. Um, would you like to start by introducing yourselves? Great to be here, Lee. Um, my name is Nadina. I am a PhD candidate in ecological engineering, jointly at the University College Dublin Spatial Dynamics Lab, the MIT Sensible City Lab, and Trinity College Dublin. I'm also the CEO and co-founder of Green City Watch, which is a geospatial AI firm specializing in urban ecological engineering, and the innovation director at the Internet of Nature. That's and my name is Sophie. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've just ruined that. I just wanted to try to butt in to say that's a much, much better in, uh, uh, introduction than, than I think I'm ever going ever gonna to have for myself. And hello, Sophie. Wel- welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Lee. It's great to be here. Uh, my name is Sophie, uh, Canadian, born and raised. I'm a former urban forester, and I'm currently a PhD student at the University of British Columbia. And I'm the research director at the Internet of Nature alongside Adina. Thanks both of you for, um, for, for, for joining me this week and, um, and uh, Sophie I understand that you're a, a PhD student of Cecil that joined me on the last episode? Yes I am yeah I started with Cecil in uh, 2018. Fantastic so um, so this is how I found out about the, um, the internet of um, and the internet of nature could we could we begin by, um, by talking a little bit about that um, explaining the concept how it came about? Absolutely so The Internet of Nature really came about because, as we've known for centuries, in forests, plants talk via mycorrhizal fungi that colonize the plant's root system and develop this symbiotic association with one another. These fungi establish a network, and it really allows for this biological communication in which nutrients, water, carbon, and even information like defense signals about pests and disease are exchanged. So we know that, but these, what we do also know is that these fungal networks have kept forests and plant systems 
self-regulating and self-sufficient for hundreds of millions of years. But then when it comes to cities, these same fungal networks are highly fragmented. Trees and plants evolved to help their neighbors, but they're often physically blocked from doing so in cities, causing poor soil health and high mortality rates among urban trees and all of these other challenges that they face. And the problem is, is that we really can't afford to lose urban nature. Uh, nature may seem far from the urban environment, but research increasingly shows us that it plays a critical role in stormwater management, pollution reduction, climate resiliency, and nature also just makes us better people by offering benefits like stress reduction and opportunities for social connection. So essentially, Sophie and I asked, with this increasing recognition that, that green and natural spaces are crucial to urban life, coupled with the rise of smart cities, what if technology could step in where Earth's biological communication networks have been altered and disrupted? The Internet of Nature, or as we like to call it sometimes, the city's biotechnological communication network could be the innovative approach needed to better value, understand, and manage these novel ecosystems. And that can really be applied in, in several different ways. So you could imagine things like using sensor networks for real-time soil monitoring, mining social media for public opinion on green spaces, to even using drones for pest detection and remote sensing for ecosystem services analysis. The ION really is all about researching and incubating these next frontiers in urban ecosystem management so that we can really finally start to bridge this gap between smarter and greener cities. So is this a, um, a commercial venture that's now up and running? Is it a publicly funded body? How is the, um, how is the Internet of Nature um, as a project structured and, 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 and moving forward? So it's still in its infancy. Um, and uh, the direction that it'll take um, is still yet to be determined. But what it is for right now is we've recently launched our, our website, which is theinternetofnature.com. And this really serves as a, a place to compile all of our work and as a platform for all Internet of Nature resources and our, a launch pad for a bunch of future endeavors that we have planned. Fantastic. We'll put a link to that in the um, in the in the podcast notes. Now, now I noticed that you've um, that you've appeared on the um, on the TED Talks um, um, ex explaining this. It's a fantastic talk. We'll also we'll also link to um, link to that. The language that you used to describe this was um, smart urban um, forest. Can we can we drill into that and unpack it um, a, a little bit? What what specifically um, will the technology do? What will that look like in terms of um, piecing together the um, the missing links between discrete areas of of, um, of of nature of green infrastructure within the urban area? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, Sophie speaking here. So um, we actually published a, a paper last year on this where we did kind of a big overarching literature review. We call this kind of a state of the art review on what has been done so far in terms of what we call smart applications in urban forest management. And as you learned from Cecil, you know, urban forest management is this idea of designing and managing uh, trees in cities, essentially. Um, and so uh, we found quite a few kind of interesting applications here and there, still not in an entirely cohesive vision, which is why we're very excited about launching uh, the idea of smart urban forest management and the Internet of Nature. 
Uh, but there are a few really interesting things coming out of different parts of the world. So uh, there's this uh, company in the, in the Netherlands that's using uh, soil sensors to monitor moisture and to actually send direct messages to citizens and to tree managers about when a tree needs uh, more water. There are cases of researchers using virtual reality and augmented reality to help design park spaces to elicit uh, human perceptions about spaces so that they can better design green spaces. Uh, and so really the two overarching themes that have emerged from this are uh, human and trees, really. So this idea that technology can be used to both concurrently enhance green benefits while also empowering citizens or the people who live in cities to steward uh, these beings, these, you know, creatures that grow and age and change over time, but that provide so many ecosystem services. And uh, it's important to consider that those two themes and how they interact in urban forestry, because urban forests are social ecological systems where people and trees constantly interact. And so for us, the idea really is that this technology or these various types of technologies and technological applications can really bring this connection closer and elicit different patterns and perceptions related to these connections. So um, to, to, to drill down into, into that a little bit, a little bit more, um, who I'm, I, I mean, hundred percent agreement with you that the um that that the uh about obviously the the benefits of trees but also that um that that the need to take greater care of the trees that we have offers an opportunity for education and and greater connection between mm. um, between the residents of the cities and and those cities a feeling of participation and stewardship and and so on but is this um how does it how does the technology actually work here is there somebody sitting in a room with a bank of monitors looking at um, footage from drones or is mm -hmm. it going to be automated and notifying um city authorities or community stewards um, yeah. how, how, how do you envisage that um that that that, that the logistics That's a fantastic like. question yeah it's a fantastic question and i i will probably give an unsatisfactory answer here in that, I think, <laughs> That's usually I think, me that does that, Sophie. <laughs> <laughs> I think it will really depend. So what's really important in urban forest management is to consider local needs and context-specific needs. And the reality is that not all municipalities at this stage are prepared to launch a full-scale kind of cyber forest that can provide absolutely every ounce of data and every kind of possible decision that they can take to, you know, fully operate this thing in either an automated or remote way. Um, so, so I will say that it, it may come in stages and there may be some really um, pressing needs that need to be addressed. So for example, a lot of cities don't even have a tree inventory. So a lot of cities don't have the resources or the capacity to know what their urban forest consists of and to be able to go out and measure it and to gather data on it. So that would be an ideal first step in implementing some of this technology, whether that would be, let's say, kind of a remote satellite way of doing that or a street level way of doing that um, to, to enable this kind of building of capacity to gather more data on the urban forest. Um, and some cities might be way on their way and might be more interested in eliciting 
uh, citizen feedback and may use social media to do so. So I will say that to get down into a bit of the meat and potatoes here, generally speaking, the urban forest, the public urban forest is managed by the municipality. And so when I say public or urban forest, I talk about street trees, park trees, perhaps trees in remnant areas, in institutional settings, golf courses, et cetera. Um, so so if, if we are prepared to launch kind of more technolo technological applications in these areas, generally it would likely be the municipality or a type of contractor who runs this kind of uh, scale activity. But it's worth mentioning that a large part of the urban forest, especially in North America, is on private land. And often it's in people's front and backyards. And that potentially provides an opportunity to have some type of citizen technological interaction on private property. I mean, we already know that citizens are using, you know, plant identification apps and gardening sure. apps, and that can absolutely uh, relate to trees as well. And so there, there is a bit of this kind of private public institutional piece that becomes quite interesting when we start talking about the management of the urban forest as a whole. That's really, um, that's really interesting. I think one thing that to, to um, condition or to, um, to frame the conversation is that um, technologies, even though we're in a digital age and AI, um, an AI age now that this may not necessarily be um, cyborgs or Thomasa um, flying around, you know, like hand tools in car hand tools in carpentry count as technologies to manipulate wood. Absolutely. You know, it's got, they, they don't have to be battery operated or, um, or, or, or and, and beyond in order to count as technology. So is that, it's one of the ways that maybe we can think about um, describing the um, this initiative is actually about increasing like increasingly sophisticated systems which which support the, the trees to do what the natural process that no technological system can reproduce. Absolutely. And I think just to add on that briefly, it's this idea that in a forest, the surrounding trees, the trees' neighbors, if you will, can really act as as tree stewards for other trees. You know, there's enough uh, scientific evidence out there to show that all these things are shared amongst trees. All these different resources are shared amongst trees. But if we then make the make the choice to decide that we need more trees in cities which we do and we start planting those trees and nurturing those trees we're taking away a lot of those in those fungal networks that they would have had in cities so i feel like it's it's then the human responsibility to stand up and be the stewards that that tree needs and that's where i think technology comes in and, and really offers a concrete way to be able to do that at scale yeah Absolutely. Yeah, cities can be really, really difficult places in which to grow trees. And we see technology kind of acting as a bit of a bridge, so to speak, to help them along uh, in ways that may not have been possible without that kind of tech. The, um, <clears throat> the data that's generated in the, um, in, the, in, in the process of all of this, is it, um, is it academic data is it um are there are there any issues around um you know open source around um around the politics of um of of um of ownership of um of the of the knowledge that's produced that 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 needs to be or that not cautioned against but at least it needs to be um we need to be aware of as we move mm -hmm. into move into this space again another fantastic question 
uh, question, which I may again provide a bit of an unsatisfactory <laughs> answer to, I will say again that it, it will likely depend as this moves forward and as we uh, continuously start applying some of these techniques and tools to trees. Um, you know, we're, we're entering a really interesting phase right now in the world where, where data is actually so valuable. Uh, I remember, you know, with this whole Cambridge Analytica stuff, which we absolutely will not go into here, uh, the, I, I remember someone mentioning that data is now worth more than oil. And it's, it's really something to be cautious about when we move into the smart city space. Uh, because privacy is absolutely of paramount concern. And, you know, we may not necessarily see the um, absolute connection between data on trees and data on people, but, but it may potentially be of concern when we're dealing with trees on private property and when we're dealing with private property data. And so um, I think that we will have to come to terms with the fact that not all of the data collected, especially if that data kind of relates to, to private property data, will be able to be completely and absolutely available openly to the public, you know, and we, we already have uh, that kind of restriction when we deal with city infrastructure. When I worked as an urban forester, not even all city data was available to me for security reasons. Uh, one great example was kind of water lines. Um, I wasn't allowed to know where the sources of some of the water lines were for security reasons. And I think that that's still quite valid. And in the same way that we should kind of protect some city data uh, for security reasons, it absolutely makes sense to also protect some tree slash people data for privacy reasons. And so in terms of how this data can be used, absolutely, if it's openly available, it can be used for academic purposes, for research purposes, for you know, studying the city, for the city itself to make decisions. But I hesitate to say that moving forward, all data on urban forests, um, especially as it relates to private, uh, potentially private property data should be absolutely made open, no questions asked. Uh, there will likely be some conversations to be had with cities and with the people who live in those cities and how comfortable they feel with that process. Yeah, that's um, that, that's a really interesting way of framing it. I, I was thinking also about something like, say, Monsanto with their, um, their the, the knowledge of, um, of a bank of genes or, you know, da mm -hmm. data around what will grow in a certain place and what won't, what benefits arise can be derived for populations from a certain, um, a certain set of tree planting. That could be, that could be in the commonwealth of human knowledge, a time like now where countries or populations of varying economic means need mm -hmm. need this need this information that that um that the distribution of access to the knowledge about what works and 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 what doesn't work could it's an it's an opportunity to challenge or reinforce some of the power networks i guess that have um, that have grown up around um around around science and tech but again like you said like you very well said these things are emergent and and contested and one of the fascinating things that we about the about the times in in which we live is that um that data does provide for um as we, as you alluded to some some pretty huge abuses of of power but it also creates the conditions for for like really radical transformation of the conditions that we're all living in especially in in cities where every little intervention reaches so many more people than, than it ever has done in the um in the past right mm -hmm. absolutely 
can I just ask you what you might say to people who may express a concern about um, digital overload, you know, the increasing permeation of our lives with with technology? Um, would would they be um, right to see the Internet of Nature as a further example of that? Are, are there any grounds for concern there, would you say? Uh, we, we have definitely heard from some people concerns about kind of tech separating us more from nature, which is, as Nadina mentioned earlier on, absolutely something that's, that's an issue and that is, is not something that we necessarily want to perpetuate with the use of tech. I have to say, I am not yet convinced that there's a causality there. I, I mm -hmm. think that there are many reasons in kind of modern society, why we might feel separated from nature and why we physically are at some point. Um, but for me, at least, I think that there is an incredible opportunity for easily accessible, user-friendly technology to actually bring us closer to a certain degree. And I'll, I'll bring back that idea of the, the tree watering sensor that can send a text message to a citizen nearby perhaps instructions that can tell them what to do, how to be a tree steward. And so I think that there's really this interesting opportunity to bring people into the fray, so to speak. So to really bring people closer to the management of these natural assets that we interact with a lot throughout our lives and that we may never have necessarily hugged or managed or done anything with. And, I, you know, in the same way that Pokemon Go led people outside, even though, you know, people were kind of on their phones a lot for it, uh, I think that there is still, like, a way to, to do this in a really clever way, in a way that can entice people uh, to, to pay a little bit more attention to these things that they may take for granted. So, um, so you spoke there also about the um, the notion of high quality of um, high quality parks that the Internet of Nature will be helping to drive. Can I can I ask you to uh, clarify a little bit what high quality might mean in this context? You know, can it be should it be defined by experts, arborists, so forth, um, or or is it something more about the aesthetic experience of the um, of, of of the public, or perhaps it's both. So defining the quality of parks has been something that experts have worked at for decades and it's something that's incredibly difficult to do because quality means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So to answer this properly I'd have to defer to the fantastic work that's done by the Trust for Public Land. And the Trust for Public Land has a really simple mandate to ensure that everybody in the states has a great park within a 10 minute walk of home. And a lot of this work was really founded by um, a man named Peter Harnick, and he's now the director for the Center of City Park Excellence. And essentially what he did is he studied park funding and acreage in the nation's largest cities, and he wrote what he calls the seven habits of highly effective park systems. And it essentially is summed up into making sure there's adequate size, making sure there's service and amenities. So things like, you know, playgrounds and water fountains and things of that nature, making sure there's enough investment to actually money to uh, keep up those services and amenities and just making sure that it's accessible. So I think if you kind of follow those four general guidelines, then you more or less have a high quality park that everyone can agree on. But again, it's, it's something that's been debated and discussed for years. I like that, and that title reminds me of um, uh, 
was the uh, the name of the book the uh, the seven practices of um highly effective people or something yeah <laughs> so tr that's that's very like me to stumble over the um, highly effective people part of that, <laughs> that statement um okay fantastic so um you mentioned um green city watch um uh, earlier on the technologies that we've um, that we now have for evaluating um for checking on the condition of trees plants um can we talk a little bit about how well advanced they are along their potential development trajectory are we are we now is this vista of possibilities opened up because tech because tech's changed or is it now are we plotting a path towards tech that can that we hope can do the job in future yeah, so Green City Watch is really in the business of empowering urban foresters and arborists who are really at the front line of grappling to keep up with these changing systems, these changing urban ecosystems. So what Green City Watch has done is it's kind of leveraged this unique combination of urban ecological expertise, very high resolution remote sensing and machine learning techniques to essentially modernize how a lot of these current workflows um, work in practice. So this tool, this product that we're developing is called TreeTect. And essentially how we came up with it was we worked with over 30 cities across the world. And that uh, in addition to that, we were able to speak with 10 or 15 more cities and having that access to being able to speak with those with the people that are actually working on tree maintenance, tree care, tree pruning on the front lines was able to give us a lot of insight into some of the main challenges that they're running into. So essentially now we're, we're piloting this tree tech technology with the city of Boston, and that essentially helps to kind of improve its accuracy and viability and also kind of establish these potential use cases that it can be used for. Essentially what it's used for now is basically to offer uh, fill in the gaps in existing tree inventories, but we really want to work this um, continue to develop this so that it could actually act as more or less a monitoring trajectory to monitor the same trees on a regular basis and at the same time act as almost an early detection system against potential stresses like water stress, pests, disease and other kind of pathogens. That's excellent. I, I think I saw um, a, a, a publication recently which was talking about um, about trials in Boston and one of the learnings that that I read that was taken away was that there was uh, there was insight around whether or not it was better to protect um, the existing tree stock or to um, you know or to or to invest in in planting both. Now obviously there is there are huge tree drives um, going on at the moment and our paths crossed because I was speaking about exactly that with with Cecil um, in in National Tree Week. But is there um, does this how does this feed into the conversation around um, around protection versus um, new new plantations? Yeah, it has, I think it has everything to do with that conversation because really what we're after is increasing tree longevity in cities. Um, as we talked about previously, trees have a really hard time in cities. They face a difficult life there due to a number of different challenges. And making sure that we have established mature trees that are healthy are the only way that we're really going to be able to benefit from all of these different ecosystem services and functional value that these trees give us. So our focus is very much on creating this early warning system for older trees uh, so that they can actually, you know, so that we can be a lot more proactive in our tree care rather than be reactive, which is um, more of the 
the case that's that's currently going on. Um, so, but I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's got to be a combination between you know planting new trees because we are losing trees faster than we're planting them. So of course we need to be planting them, but it's very very important to maintain the health of of older trees as well. Yeah, and perhaps actually just to to add on to that, I think that this kind of conversation is so important to have because. It, there needs to be a more explicit recognition that the value of trees appreciates over time, right? Like when you compare green infrastructure to gray infrastructure, um, gray infrastructure, you know, as soon as it's new and it's constructed, it's put in the ground, it starts to depreciate value right away um, because of, you know, stresses, urban stresses, weather, all that kind of stuff, you know, cracks in sidewalks and driveways, um, and et cetera. Uh, whereas trees, you know, when you plant them over the next 50 to 60 years, hopefully they appreciate in value. And so there's really something to be said for protecting older trees that are really providing almost kind of like the maximum of the ecosystem services that they can uh, versus younger trees. And I mean, not to say that we shouldn't plant younger trees at all, of course not, but there definitely is this kind of, uh, this value add over time that takes a really long time to get to. Um, and it's important to remember that I think in terms of monitoring as well, you know, just because we are planning on replacing, let's say, an old big tree with a few new ones, it's still important to consider the temporal context and recognize that those values that you're losing, those services are not going to be replaced for another 40, 50 years. Um, can we uh, just for myself included, for those who, um, who who maybe aren't so familiar with the with the science of um, of, of of why urban trees are, um, are more fragile in their first few years, can we can we just unpack a little bit about the plant biology? What or rather, what is it about cities that makes the um, makes uh, young makes uh, such a stressful context for young plants? So I think the problems here are really twofold. Um, there's problems in the establishment period, which is more or less two to three years after it's been planted. So these could be issues like underwatering or overwatering, you know, trying to find this happy medium between how much water the tree should get, which is very much dependent on, you know, the weather and environmental conditions in that specific area. Uh, also just planting a tree in an area that already has really poor soil quality. You really need enough organic matter and these kinds of conditions to support soil biology. To, and it's in, especially critical in, in when a tree is getting established that it's able to uh, establish these, these, um, these, these soil biological communicate, these symbiotic relationships, essentially. Um, there's also problems with longer term growth, like again, a lack of good soil quality, a lack of soil volume, but other kinds of, you know, pests and diseases and road salt is a really big one that's getting more and more attention. Um, there's, there's problems with vandalism and it can even just get down to, you know, trees being urinated on by dogs all the time, especially tree, street trees or being hit by reckless drivers or having people park their bikes up against them. All of these can, can make for a pretty stressful environment in cities. Um, but I think those are kind of the biological issues. There's a ton of stuff on the, on the governance side of things, which also makes urban trees face a more difficult life in cities. Is there any one thing in particular that would make a huge difference? You know, so for example, is with the, as we move, say, the car fleet uh, 
the, the, the car fleet in towns to um, to electric vehicles. Um, is that going to does air pollution um, make a substantial? If we improve that, are we going to be getting a stacked benefit of substantially improving the the the, uh, the, the situation for for young tree plantations in town? Hmm. It's a good question. Um, I have to say, I'm not much of an expert on air pollution per se. Uh, I know that. You know, in some circles, there's a bit of a contentious debate, actually, on the uh, correlations and relationships between air pollution and trees. Um, and perhaps Nadina has a bit more to say about that. But but I just going back to kind of this, this governance aspect and, you know, what really could be improved to perhaps um, help young urban trees just do that a little bit better. Um, I would say resources and capacity is still a huge issue that so many municipalities are facing. Um, you know, there simply aren't always enough resources to go around and to ensure that newly planted trees are adequately watered and adequately pruned when comes the time to do so. It's really the first few years that are quite critical um, to ensuring vitality and longevity of these trees. And so um, that's still quite a a big challenge, but a a very human-centered challenge. So it means that there is somewhat of a human-centered solution here, right? Uh, But getting at that resource constraint, I think, is a huge opportunity as well. And and I'm sure that in due time, there will be many innovative solutions and perhaps technological ones as well that can get at, you know, taking care of these trees more effectively and more efficiently. I, I'm intrigued to see um, uh, how how that element of this conversation develops. I do wonder if with, with an emerging kind of eco civic pride might emerge or, or civic movement in which there's a a sense of not or not conscripting people to go and fight in wars but you take a time out you know you, didn't you have something like this in america wasn't there a movement like this in um in in america in the 60s 70s that where you um you give up time um you know maybe between um co- uh, school and college to um to spend it to spend a year being part of a um, you know, a, a tree care core or, um, oh, or, or doing could doing be. Community. I mean, I wasn't alive in the 60s. So no, but <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. Uh, it could be, but but you've brought up an interesting idea, this kind of idea of civic pride. I know that uh, there is a really interesting initiative that came out of Minneapolis a few years ago, and I, I don't know if they're still doing it, uh, but it was called Brew a Better Forest. And the idea was that citizens would be rewarded for watering newly planted trees on city property by getting a free case of beer, uh, and, which was donated by local breweries. And that's a really simple concept, right? This idea that, you know, kind of incentivize people taking care of trees that don't necessarily belong to them, but that provide public goods. And, and in terms of technology, I see some opportunities here. Uh, perhaps a tree watering app that gives you points or, you know, discounts at certain stores. Uh, perhaps even just um, an optimization tool for how city vehicles should move through a city uh, to, um, you know, have the least amount of uh, carbon footprint possible, uh, or perhaps, you know, optimize their, their route to be more efficient. You know, I think that there are quite a few kind of low-hanging fruit opportunities here that could definitely help this kind of resource constraint discourse. This is, um, this is definitely a, a growth area. Um, I, I cultivate these or develop these ideas um, um, in due course. Can I just um, pick up on um, uh, on the issue of tree mortality or, or at least um, <clears throat> 
the robustness of, um, of, 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 of trees in, in urban forestry at a young age. I'm guessing that there are some species that are better disposed to cope at a younger age with, um, with these more trying conditions. And, and does, has, if that is the case, has it, um, has it followed on that, um, that only certain species are being planted and, and thereby reducing the, um, the biodiversity benefits of the, um, of the, of the overall tree stock? Um, yeah, just to quickly take this on, at least given what I know, uh, given my experience with the city of Montreal, uh, there have definitely been very traditional street trees that are known to be quite tolerant, uh, such as Norway maple, um, which was really heavily planted, especially post um, Dutch elm disease and emerald ash borer. Um, and, and there are definitely other trees that are well known, such as honey locust, um, that, that are quite tolerant to urban stresses. But I, I will say that the palette, so the diversity of trees that are available to cities now um, has actually increased uh, from what I've been able to see. And I think that part of that has to do with, you know, nursery stock and allocation. There are more and more people who are kind of clamoring for interesting trees to plant in their yards. And there's a whole bunch of research on kind of perceptions and values related to trees um, and what people like to see when they choose trees in a nursery. And I also like to think that there's a lot more awareness in the arboriculture and urban forestry community about the importance of diversification. And so I think there's also demand um, on behalf of the urban foresters, landscape architects and planners. They're, they're asking for, for more trees to ensure that we kind of reduce the risk and vulnerability associated with mass mortality, like we saw with Dutch elm disease and emerald ash borer, because that was completely devastating. Yes. It's an interesting question now that you mentioned the um, the the pull rather than the um, the push necessarily. Is, is would you also say there's a, a rising concern amongst um, uh, you know amongst uh, citizens and and also indeed specifiers and and stockists presumably a rising concern with um, with climate change is helping to um, to drive different kinds of specifications. Is is climate change emerging as a kind of a a, a, a driver of what's being done on the front line now? Well, Nadina, I don't know about you, but when I started in urban forestry, I guess it would be 2014, 2015 at this point, there were not, you know, BBC articles and the Guardian articles about the importance of trees and planting trees. And I think Peter Wallabine's book, um, The Hidden Life of Trees, you know, created a big push around uh, the importance of protecting forests. But I am seeing more and more of these, these kind of very accessible uh, articles and like knowledge mobilization uh, kind of products in different mediums that are very widespread now about trees and about, you know, relationships between climate change and trees. And I'm, I'm not sure that part of that is demand for that kind of content as well. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that tree planting campaigns specifically are definitely having a moment. Um, they seem to be absolutely rampant from, um, you know, Mr. Beast's YouTube campaign to plant 20 million trees, raise the money to do so by 2020. Um, Don't forget Treelon Musk. With exactly with Treelon Musk, who <laughs> donated a million trees and a bunch of other uh, Jack Dorsey, I think, and a bunch of other, you know, big Silicon Valley guys. You know, just the idea that trees are getting attention in Silicon Valley, I think in itself already is is making a pretty clear point that it's being... Um, at least talked about in those circles. Um, although, you know, 
not to be the Debbie Downer, but it immediately also kind of makes you think about, okay, who are the actually the ones that are that are planting these trees, and more importantly, who are the ones that are maintaining these trees after they've been planted? There was this really sad article that was in The Guardian two weeks ago about a tree planting project which was in Turkey. So basically they had, you know, hundreds, hundreds, thousands of volunteers and they planted on one single day, planted 11 million trees in more than 2,000 sites across the country. It actually broke the world record for the most trees planted in one hour in a single location with something like 300,000 saplings planted in one place. And that'll happen in November. And this article came out a couple weeks ago. So in January, because the government actually came out and said up to 90% of the millions of saplings are dead. And they claimed it was because of insufficient water, but they also hinted at the fact that, you know, maybe the saplings were planted at the wrong time and, you know, maybe they weren't planted by experts. I mean, just the fact that it broke a world record for most trees planted in one hour gives you a bit of an indication at, you know, trees are not meant to be plant in, planted in seconds, you know, they need care and love and tender loving care and especially after they're planted, so... Yeah, this question about um, about the role of um, of experts is you know, it's really critical. But you know, you you if one of the ways that 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 points to about it being critical is that it can be. I think public enthusiasm can be quite a fragile thing, or or, or confidence that a certain um, a certain course of action um, is um, is the is the right course of action can be um can be quite a fragile thing and um and and that 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 energy that we need to see and you know in a kaleidoscopic different array of ways can be can be dissipated potentially we risk risk losing the energy that like you rightly said is building um is building up at the moment is there any do you have any insights into who is um okay so there's a there's a particularly um sounds like a particularly bad case um in 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 that instance um is that is that reflective of the general picture? Do you worry? I I absolutely worry, or you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't bring it up otherwise. I, I really worry that these tree planting campaigns um, do not understand the, in, just how difficult it is to 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 have a tree survive. I mean, the mortality rate is already low, even when they're planted by an ex, uh, expert. So, uh, or the mortality rate is high, should I say, even when they're planted by an expert. But I think. It, coming back to your point on when when experts are needed, I think that that's exactly what so that's exactly what Sophie and I are trying to accomplish with the Internet of Nature, which is we know that there is a massive amount of on the ground expertise, whether it's in forestry, urban forestry, or arboriculture, and that's something that we want to bring to the masses through essentially the aid of technology. So if you if you look at something like um, using high resolution remote sensing if you if you can imagine there's you know one chief urban forester and he or she is responsible for hundreds of thousands of trees if they had a way to have an early warning of you know the 200 trees that need help instead of driving around looking at 400,000 different trees that's going to really optimize their workflows and get them to the trees that need the most you know it's in the same way that there are there's an incredible amount of innovation happening now in terms of getting medicine and and healthcare in areas where either people can't access it or where people can't afford it i mean we're this we're this close to um 
a surgeon being able to perform a surgery on a patient that's thousands of miles away. And kind of drawing from, from that super inspire work, inspiring work, that's something that we're trying to also achieve in the area of, of tree healthcare. Yeah, you make a really good point. And I think also, in a, to take the, uh, the analogy of medicine, um, I think there's, um, there's good solid evidence that, um, that having, uh, using AI to do the triage on patients as they're entering the, as they're entering the, um, the, 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 the hospital with whatever the condition, the complaint, the potential complaint might be, it's, um, it's, it's, they're better at it than people. Doc, uh, computers are better at diagnosing what what course of what you know what clinical pathway patients need than um, than, um, than than healthcare uh, professionals on the ground and what that rather than thinking of that as a challenge it actually frees up you know that um, that that body of labour of knowledge knowledgeable labour to um, to respond in a much more effective way I think yeah just just being able to amplify that expertise I think that's incredibly powerful yeah well, speaking of that I noticed on your um, on uh, on your website that you're engaging with um, with professionals through um, through a series of um, of workshops. Can you tell me a little bit more about who exactly what what groups of stakeholders you're um, you're working with and what the uh, learning outcomes are from those those workshops? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're we're kind of hoping to engage with a, with a broad range of city officials. You know, we recognize that some municipalities have a lot of different departments, and you know, sometimes unfortunately can be a bit hierarchical. And sometimes decision-making processes are are not necessarily very clear. And so, um, we we did hold one of these workshops uh, in Paris at the Nature of Cities Summit uh, last year, where we had uh, quite a variety of of municipal practitioners. We had some urban planners in there and some engineering professionals, uh, because the reality is that a lot of city officials and city practitioners they want to take the time to to focus and understand how they can leverage new technologies in daily operations, because sometimes it's just that those kind of exercises are not really at their disposal. And so to help cities through this process, uh, we offer workshops and workshop series uh, to help uh, a whole range of these types of people. So like I said, planners, practitioners, any kind of municipal experts uh, to develop and implement uh, potential Internet of Nature projects. So that these would be at the cross section of green infrastructure management, technology adoption and smart city planning. And to dig into that a little bit deeper, more concretely, it's, it's kind of about facilitating foresight exercises. So in other words, activities that help practitioners and decision makers understand possible futures. So these exercises might include rapid scenario analyses and brainstorming sessions, and they generally involve discussions around key trends and technologies that are having, or according to some experts, are predicting to have, large and widespread impact for municipal operations and service delivery. So is there like a, a like a, a, a short time, um, like what, what issues are cropping up in a, in a shortness of time and also preparedness for things like, I don't know, sea level rise or, um, or, or what have you, longer term climate change related events? Is that the kind of palette of things or the way that it breaks down, things that you're looking at? Yeah, I mean, that, that definitely relates absolutely. For now, our focus really has been on green infrastructure and all the kind of benefits and services that green infrastructure provide as, as a natural asset. So of course, sea level rise is somewhat related to that, depending on if we're dealing with, with flooding. Um, and uh, depending on kind of uptake of these workshops and how they might go, we may bring other experts in who are perhaps more familiar with other environmental issues that cities are facing and see how these could relate to and incorporate into other Internet of Nature concepts. Um. 
about the um, about the kinds of um, uh, cities that you're um, or, or representatives of cities that you're talking to. Is it the case that cities of comparable size face comparable issues? You know, like versus smaller towns which face different ones, or is it more a case of um, the location or the climate in the um, in the in the um, in the region in which the the city is based? Yeah, that's a tough question. Nadina, what do you think? I would say, you know, my answer is so political. It really depends. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sophie, we were having a really good conversation about this a couple of weeks ago where we were talking about that we were seeing a ton of information coming kind of from medium-sized cities. So, yeah. of course, you would expect it from, you know, the New Yorks and the Londons and the Parises of the world. But it was, in fact, these, you know, these medium-sized cities that actually, you know, have... The, the lines of connection are just a lot shorter. So being able to kind of transfer innovation or, you know, or instigate, you know, new projects or develop kind of new workflows, it just it just happens quicker and the budgets just seem more accessible and it doesn't have to go through a hierarchy of, you know, six, ten odd people. Um, so this, I mean, in, in that case, I think there's a lot kind of medium cities can learn from each other. And this is something that... Um, the European Union and a lot of um, projects that they're sponsoring under their their Horizon 2020 research framework is they they've actually come out and said, okay, you know, we only want proposals to include kind of these small to medium sized cities um, because they're the ones where we feel you know this innovation can be adopted faster, but also at the same time we know the budget is going to go to a place where um, you know those cities might need it need it most. So Absolutely. in that sense, yeah. yeah. No, I 100% I agree. And and just to give kind of a bit of a concrete example, at least in Canada um, and in the urban forestry context, um, Halifax, located in Nova Scotia, is a, is a mid-sized city in Canada. It has about uh, 300,000 people, I think. And um, they have this kind of really unique and interesting long-standing relationship with one of the local universities. And they actually kind of contract out work to students to do urban forestry work. And so there's this really interesting collaborative partnership taking place here, which has actually been going on for, for quite a while now, that a lot of larger cities, unfortunately, may have a harder time doing simply because of, you know, some of the bureaucracy involved with, with you know, how these partnerships may go. Um, but that's just such a classic example of, you know, a unique partnership between, in, you know, different sectors and stakeholders, uh, but that have a similar vision and a mission, right, in protecting green infrastructure and natural assets in a city. This is um, it's a really interesting dynamic that about the um, about the spread of knowledge that I'd not considered before. That that in the same ways that we describe smaller businesses, startup businesses being more nimble and better able to activate their ideas without having to turn around the tanker of an existing, you know, large business. We can think about cities starting to be the ones that drive. I mean, certainly in my, I mean, my background is in green infrastructure, green roofs, and 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 there over the. The, you know the decade or so that I've been working in this field certainly you can see that there have been there were like paragons if you like early movers early adopters um, and ambitious ones like um, Portland Chicago uh, uh, over on your side of the of the Atlantic Copenhagen particularly here London now is a is a world leader thanks to some of the work of the the pioneers that we've got in um, in, in in that city um, what what would the equivalents be um, in uh in, in in your field in trees are there are there like are there beacon cities that others look to or learn learn from in particular who are the paragons 
Well, I, I think there's there's a number of cities that that immediately come to mind. I know for me, uh, Belfast uh, in Northern Ireland has uh, has increasingly been been known as as a city who is not only surrounded by greenery but have done a really good job at you know putting that into cities. Um, Washington D.C. Uh, has you know maybe has something to do with that. It's the capital of the states, but it's long been held as as a city that has a fantastic urban forest. And of course, London now. Um, which we talked about earlier, you know, it becoming, you know, the world's first national park city, having that kind of designation and also kind of on the political front. I know Daniel Raven Ellison, who started that campaign, has now gotten so far to have all the new mayoral uh, candidates actually come forward and say, you know, will you go on a walk with me uh, through some of London's green spaces to really kind of show just how important it is. Um, I've also heard really, really cool things about Tokyo, which isn't necessarily known as a city that has so much green space per capita because that city is incredibly dense, but it has shown kind of massive determination in, in rebuilding the urban forest. Um, when they were severely bombed in World War II, they were able to, you know, to, to double the amount of trees after that, after so many were destroyed. Uh, and now they've, they've got hundreds of thousands of trees. Um, I know that one's come to mind. Uh, Sophie, you might have some favorite examples too. Yeah, so I think you actually named out quite a few that are that are fantastic. But I wanted to give a, a shout out to Birmingham, actually, especially since Medina and I are going to give a duo keynote there in April at Trees um, People in the Built Environment Conference because they just achieved, I believe it was just yesterday, a Tree City of the World status which is um, a new status, I think, that started um, in the, at the Urban Forest Conference in Mantova, right, in 2018. Yeah, the FAO put it forward. Right, right. So it's this kind of designation that your urban forest canopy has been upheld to a certain standard, and I believe that there are kind of canopy requirements and management requirements, govern, governance kind of mandates. Uh, it's quite a broad uh, standard, I believe, but it's interesting that we have a world standard right now in terms of what it means to be a tree city of the world. And so congratulations, Birmingham. And I'm excited yeah. to see it in person. <laughs> Me too. Could I, um, could I just ask on that then? Um, and we're getting close to, um, I'll start to ask the, um, the wrap-up questions shortly, I think, because I've, um, I've taken up enough of your evening. Um, but the question um, that, um, that occurs to me, given what we've spoken about, what's really important, is that... In the in this designation, is there um, a recognition of the um, the degree, the amount of care provided to the trees? Do you know? Do they recognize? Is part of getting recognised for the um, international tree city um, designation is that do you need to d demonstrate that you um, that, that they were all very well cared for? So yeah, so there's a bit of um, information online. I believe they have their own website, but essentially there are these five core. They call them standards, and they're quite broad. So um, they're kind of about establishing responsibility over, you know, who takes care of the trees. So establishing some type of governance around them, right? Setting rules for that, um, knowing what you have, that's a huge part of tree care. I mean, Nadina has spoken a bit about that. So being able to assess the state of your resource, allocate resources. So that comes into this um, discussion that we also had around kind of capacity and resource constraints and how do you use what you have, right? And they also have this other interesting core tenet, which is celebrate achievements. So recognize when you've done something really, really great in your locale for urban forests, which is kind of a, an interesting idea. I think it's wonderful. And that kind of promotes that civic pride that we talked about as well. 
Fantastic. Uh, Sophie, Nadina, thanks so much for joining you. Before um, before we wrap that up, I wonder if I could ask you um, just a couple of questions that I always run by my um, run by my run by my guests. Um, first of which, and possibly the most important, is if you were queen for a day, both of you, what one thing would you uh, would you change to make a positive difference? For me, it would be that to make the outdoors a classroom for every single student in the world. I was incredibly shocked when I read a recent study that showed that children spend less time outside each day than prison inmates, at least in the US. Um, and I, I don't think that that's much different um, for many other countries in the world. Um, so to just put that into perspective, prison inmates get a mandatory of two hours outside every single day. So that means children, and I mean, let's be honest, most adults are spending less than two hours of every single day outside. And that is just absolutely crushing to think that we're spending that much time inside. And it's also the reason behind, I think, a lot of the issues that we're seeing now. So that lack of exposure to nature can have all kinds of detrimental impacts on children's development, like lack of confidence and increased obesity and lower mental well-being. So I think if, if we could bring that classroom outside more, I think that would be an incredible opportunity. There is a really great program in Boston where I'm currently based called the Intrepid Academy, which basically instead of organizing semesters abroad, they organize semester outdoors, which is for high school students. And specifically, they're focusing on at-risk youth to begin with. And the impact that they've seen on moving kids' classrooms outside has had insane impacts on their health, confidence, and academic results. So. I'd love to see a lot more of that. Well, that's a hard agree from me. <laughs> me too. <laughs> How about you, Sophie? Queen uh, for a day? Right, I suppose mine's a bit more broad. Um, uh, it would be to create kind of more blended coursework programs for sciences and humanities from high school all the way to university. I think a lot of the problems that we're kind of facing right now in this time of very unprecedented change is, are very much rooted in kind of phenomenon of, of separating young people into disciplinary silos and certain ways of thinking early on. Um, and as an interdisciplinary researcher, I'd love to see more crossover between disciplines and knowledge domains and ways in which that we can facilitate that crossover. I think having a more solid and multifaceted understanding of arts and humanities and natural and life sciences, like the earliest universities taught, would create a much better launchpad for global citizenship. Amen. Yeah, more rounded people, and, and, yeah. and some of that, some of that study um, out, out, outdoors. I know that my university, um, Sussex, here in the UK, we had a school system where, whatever it was that you signed up for, you did, um, you did. Uh, I think it was forty percent of your classes were, would be in. So uh, mine was social sciences, so I did history, but with um, all the range of social sciences, uh, social science subjects um, over the course of the three years. But you could you could um, do sciences, you could go do um, study, um, you could be based in uh, a school which focused on African and um, and Asian culture, um, uh, NGAM, which was English and American studies, and so yeah, really spoke to that sense of trying to create you know like more more rounded people at the end so yeah another yeah strong, fantastic yeah strong agree from me on that one Sophie thanks very much okay so um the last couple of um the last couple of things then um I'd love it if you could recommend one book or um or podcast each that you um that you think everyone should be listening to if they're not already or reading so I, I recently finished The Outdoor Citizen by John Judge he's the president and CEO of the Appalachian Mountain Club 
which is actually America's oldest conservation and outdoors organization. And I particularly enjoyed his chapter called The Next Ecology and Digital Ecosystems, which has the Internet of Nature written all over it, of course. And he really presents this nuanced perspective on how technology might be exactly what the world needs to build these outdoor cities. Brilliant. I'll link to that in the, um, in the notes accompanying the show. Yeah, so I'm finishing up um, a book called The Second Machine Age, Work, Progress, and Prosperity in a Time of Brilliant Technologies. It's by two researchers uh, at MIT, and it's just a really fantastic description and analysis about how uh, the digital technological revolution is changing how we live and increasingly rapidly. Uh, unfortunately, there's not much mention about technology and nature yet, but I think that'll change. Fantastic. And uh, someone, a, a person or a social media channel that you admire? Not a person, but definitely a social media channel uh, called The Witness Tree, which is at A Witness Tree on Twitter. And it's essentially a social media outreach uh, project led by Tip uh, Rademacher of the Northern University uh, or the Northern Arizona University and Harvard University. And essentially what it is, it's a 100-year-old red oak tree that's been equipped with a slew of different sensors that are in regular communication with a bot. And then through that bot, the tree then tweets about its growth, condition, and the dangers it faces from climate change. So I... Um, I really enjoy its tweets, and it's, of course, a fantastic application of the ION as well. How many followers does the tree have? It's a great question, but I think it's nearing <laughs> over, like, 20,000. I mean, it's oh, a, lot, a lot more than me, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> me too. <laughs> okay, Sophie, hard to follow the tree. I know it is. Um, I have to plug a female scientist. Uh, her name is Hope Darren. She's a geobiologist who studies fossil forests, and she's the author of a book called Lab Girl, which is really amazing. I can't recommend enough. It's kind of an autobiography of her of her career in science. Uh, her Twitter is mostly lighthearted science memes, but it's sprinkled with cold hard science truth. So I'd really recommend it. Okay, that's going on the list as, um, as well. And then finally, from both of you, if I may, uh, your favorite place to immerse yourself in nature? Currently living in Boston, Mount Auburn Cemetery is lovely. Uh, it's publicly accessible and um, it's it's beautiful a place to relax. Um, and at home in Amsterdam, I'm privileged enough to live across from Amsterdam Central Park. So really, the first two to three kilometers of my commute, I have to, I get to get my uh, my daily dose of green, which is awesome. Fantastic. And Sophie, to wrap things up. Yeah. So I'm I'm based at the University of British Columbia, and we have just a gorgeous campus at the at the tip of. Um, the a kind of peninsula uh, in Vancouver here and so um there's this great beach which is only a 15 minute walk from uh from my office called Rec Beach and it's just you're completely surrounded by the the temperate rainforest of the region and it's just fantastic and the Pacific Ocean is right there and I just uh, I'm very very lucky to be so close to it it's um it's it, it's making me jealous right now <laughs> Thank you both ever so much for um, for taking the time to um, to um, to talk me through your, this really exciting um, new project. I'm looking forward to see how it develops very much indeed, and staying in staying in touch with you as it does. Thanks yeah, so, thanks much, so much for having us. It was great to be here. Thank you.